Bob, thank you for being here. Bob and John, thank you for joining us for this Q&A time. We have some good questions that have been written in and others tweeted in. And let's pray and ask for God's help in this short season of questions and answers. Father in in heaven, would you help us now? uh, Lead us to what would be most uh, helpful for the body of Christ, for worship leaders who would be here. Uh, Would you help John and Bob in their responses and in thinking through the theology and practice that we'll want to ask about in this session. Would Jesus be glorified and would the saints be helped in this time? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, you seem to perhaps talk from experience at some point about not being on the same page with a worship leader. Um, whether that has been the case or not, would there be advice you would have for preachers or church leaders who aren't on the same page with their worship leader as they try to navigate that season they're in? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for the younger, and maybe that would be anybody under 50, I don't know, uh, patience is going to be absolutely crucial. Um, the pulpit is a very powerful place. It's the kind of power that's not organizational. It's not manipulative. It's not political. It's the word of God fed into the people's lives week after week. It's the most powerful place to bring about theological, spiritual change. And so if you're the preaching pastor, you have a a golden place and you want to not be strident about issues and you want to not be hobby horses. You want to be biblical through and through and God-centered. And over time, the people that don't like that, they tend to drift away. And the people that are hungry for that tend to come. And a critical mass develops. So that's that's one crucial way. That may take a long time. If, if it's a church totally not used to exposition and totally not used to God-centeredness, but, but the flavor. When, when I came here, it was an unbelievably traditional church. There was an organ. There was a 10-hour-week ten, ten choir leader. And there was me. And, and I, I, I immediately, I mean, it was my responsibility to design the services. He just led us a choir number. And, and I, I did the bulletin. I did, I did everything. So I chose immediately weighty hymns, you know, immortal, invisible, God only wise. This church had never sung that, that they were into, like the brother was saying a minute ago, into um, the last hundred years of, of gospel songs that were fairly light. And so I began to weave those in. And since I led the service, I, I didn't say silly things between the songs, just prayed and tried to keep things moving. So Having that place enables you to model some things, even when you can't control everything else. Second thing is, uh, over time, you want to gather leaders around you, elders, deacons, whatever you call them, who, who care about these things. But that happens over time. I, I remember in the early days, we had 24 deacons, and very few of them had a theological clue what I was about when I came. Not a clue. And they didn't know what question to ask me when I came. They were just simple, godly, pietistic Baptists. And they weren't theologically driven. And so over time, you teach and you teach and you teach. And you model seriousness in prayer. 
And ones that are really superficial or even carnal, they just kind of move away from that. That's not what they want to be around. And others start to gravitate in. And then you say a few years into your tenure, you know, we need to think of what the criteria should be for calling people onto this council. You develop the biblical criteria, and, and suddenly you're calling more serious, deep, responsible, biblically-oriented leaders. And this, this takes 5, 10, 15 years to build a, 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 a sense of we're a Bible people. We're a God people. We're a vertically-driven people. We're not opinion-oriented. We're just God-oriented. And, and once, once that critical mass on the council and in the church takes place, then making decisions about worships, music, and other things is, is easier. But it's a, long, it's a long road. And you have to love people, and you have to love the Word, and be willing to see good things happening when everything's not happening you wish were happening. Bob, to uh, swap the scenario, what counsel would you give a worship leader who would love this vision of gravity and gladness and is partnered with a preacher that's not on the same page? Pray first, if you're not already doing that. Um, Make sure that you're pursuing humility for the glory of Christ rather than presenting your perspective. You can present the right thing in a proud way, in the wrong way. And you're really there to serve the the vision and the leadership of the pastor. So you want to approach things with a humble heart. But I, I found it helpful to, or seen, seen it be helpful when someone uh, brings in like a third party, a third voice, a book, a tape, they don't have tapes anymore, uh, DVD, um, something like that. Where you can say, could we listen to this together? Um, I mean, that, that would be a more direct way of doing it. I think talking through things, seeking to understand your pastor is so important. What I've seen happen a lot of times is we, we think we already understand what the pastor's saying. They think they understand what you're saying. And you're really using terms in a different way. And you don't understand what each other is saying. So you might think the pastor's, you know, the pastor might be saying, you know, you're... Uh, we, we need songs that are faster. They, they might say something like that. And you, you want to do slow, you know, bring the gravity in. And, and he might be saying something true that you need to listen to. He might be saying that when you lead, you do songs way too slow. And so you want to at least be open to that possibility that you might not be understanding. If you talk through those things and you find out it really is a difference of theology... A difference of, of the, the value of the gospel as we meet. I think there does come a time, and it requires a lot of patience, a lot of love. But I think there can come a time, a year into it, two years into it, maybe six months into it, I'm not sure, where you really have to ask, am I in the right church? Um, but that, I mean, that's way down the road, and I wouldn't, that's not counsel, but that, that situation does exist, and I think uh, at times if you've expressed everything you can in a humble way and your pastor is definitely committed to a course that, that you really can't support, you'll both be happier if, if you're somewhere else uh, where you really can support the leadership and vision of the pastor. Wouldn't go there first, wouldn't go there the first month, the second month, the third month. 
I wouldn't go there for a long time, and I'd, I'd get counsel about how you're handling the situation as well. A question for the two of you. Um, in your years, you've been through various, what some have called worship wars, where there was a younger generation desiring to do things with different intuitions in the older generation. Uh, are there lessons learned from that season that would be of help to the younger generation today as they go through desiring changes or different intuitions about corporate worship? Well, I'll speak first for the younger generation representing the younger generation. John, you can handle the one. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think humility is a key word. It's a key quality. It's a key character uh, value that we must have. Uh, that God gives us Jesus as our supreme example. Uh, not only our example, but the one who enables us to be humble. Um, can I speak? To, I want to speak to both. As a part of the older generation, um, I, I've, I, I need to value the the gifts, the creativity, the zeal the inspiration of the younger generation and realize that not everything I've done for the last 26 years in ministry has been right or God ordained or even the, some of the things I'm still doing. And I need to, I need to be open to hearing, well, I, I want to know if this is effective. I may be doing the right things, but it's not having an impact. I want to hear that from, from the, the younger generation. So just be, being humble to listen and also being courageous to lead and to, to make time available to listen, I think is a part of, of making that work. It's part of the younger generation. Uh, it's, you just reverse it and say, uh, as a younger leader, I can really learn from those who have gone before me. And what I'd say to you if you're, if you're younger is, Learn to serve in the way that an older generation has served before you begin to critique it. Because don't just come in saying, I've got a better idea when you've never actually tried the old idea. Because a lot of times we find, as we get older, we find out we come around to seeing why those who are older were doing what they do. It's like the, 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 the kid who says, yeah, you know, when I was younger, my daddy used to be so dumb. And now as I'm getting older, he's getting smarter. Well, no, you're getting humbler. You're getting wiser. And you're seeing the things he said before really are, really are true. So there'll be some thoughts. Um, we really did change. Um, looking, all the guys are still here. They walked, Dan and Chuck, especially Jason's more recent, walked through the whole thing. Chuck really was, I think, a major architect for the change because um, for 10 to 13 years, we were as classic as you can get, pipe organ and hymns and a choir and, uh, and, and great hymns. I mean, I loved it. I did not chafe under that. It was done well and I liked it. Um, and, then, and then it all blew apart in the early 90s for reasons you don't need to hear about right now, and, and the rebuilding of that explosion uh, was done after the church uh, took about a year and a half with 23 people on a committee, uh, four staff, and, lay, and said, who are we? 
after this blow up. Who are we? What, what should we be? We wrote a 12-page booklet about values and things, just worked our way. And once that was in place, then we looked for a new worship leader. And we, we drew up the job description, and we, we said he needs to be able to do it all. He has to be good at classical, and, and yet his center probably needs to move. I mean, the way we used to say it, can't do it with my hands, is that um, you've got a continuum from Bach to rock, okay? Um, and, and somebody's on that line. And then on this line, you have not a, you're not a point, you are a, a, a piece of the line that you have some bandwidth. Um, so your, your line, you, on this line, you may be an inch wide here or an inch wide here. And we said... We will lean towards uh, folk. Folk and fine was our language in those days. Folk and fine. Uh, and we'll lean towards folk, but we'll have a, a wide width in here. So we'll move around there. That takes a really unusual leader. Chuck is that unusual leader. Now, what happened, in fact, was we became, I would say, increasingly folk-oriented though we have an orchestra here. And that orchestra participates in fairly contemporary kinds of music with um, orchestral sound that is excellent. Um, but we have drums almost every Sunday, electric guitar almost every Sunday, a black organ, whatever that number is on that organ back there. And, 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 and so there is a kind of Bethlehem feel across across the campuses, but even the campuses aren't exactly the same. Those, those were very incremental changes. And, and Chuck and I, we'd go back and forth because I remember Chuck 10 plus years ago, I'd say, Chuck, I, I don't think I want drums on communion Sunday. I, that was where I was. I, I just, we, we're bringing them in. You know, he'd bring them in once a month or something. And, and if they showed up on communion Sunday, I said, ah, I just want it to feel different than that. And uh, now they're there all the time, and I'm happy. Um. <laughs> we change um, because because the quality. That, that's another thing. It, it needs you know what you do. You need to do well. And maybe one last thing. It's it's um, there's contemporary, and then there's contemporary. I mean, there's. There's David Crowder and there's Chris Tomlin. Those aren't the same. I mean, they don't feel the same. And, uh, and there would be you and somebody else. So, um, <laughs> what you did, yeah, what you did here would be, you know, pretty tame, right? Um, that means that you can do contemporary in a fairly traditional setting. I remember when we used to sing majesty, worship his majesty. Goodness, is that old-fashioned now. Cutting edge 15 years ago. Absolute cutting edge. <laughs> 20, 20, 20. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, incremental, yes, and lots of patience and... and uh, and you're going to lose people. You're just going to lose people if you move and love them while they leave.
Yeah, I think uh, as we teach our congregations that that corporate singing is about the truths that we're meditating on, that that's what's most crucial, especially the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has come, he has died in our place, he has risen from the dead, we can be free from our sins, free from condemnation, reconciled to God as his beloved children. That's why we gather to celebrate that. And we want music of all sorts that helps us celebrate that. Uh, it takes a while. I don't think churches teach on it nearly enough what, what it means when we come together to sing. But if that becomes the focus, uh, then everybody gets, begins to get the picture that it's not about this instrument or this style. It's about are we able to magnify God's glory in Christ through these different kinds of songs. And that, that brings a unity that is precious because it's centered around the gospel. Let me underline that. Tomorrow morning, I will read, uh, Lord willing, um, a, a paper th- that I presented at the height of our wars. I mean, we had wars that were so severe, I couldn't preach. I had to bring in somebody to preach while I sat on the platform because so many people were angry at me. It was really, really hard. And I, I wrote, what unites us in worship? We still use it today. Ten, ten things that those two sides believed. Those two sides believed. And, and when they heard them, it kept enough. The, the church didn't blow to smithereens. We lost over 200 people in that crisis. But it could have been over. I mean, it could have been over. And, and things were held together by the Holy Spirit and by grace. But ten things, I said, we're here. We're together on these. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but it, it does mean we're not at, totally at odds. Um, given your last response, Bob, this may be too much of a softball, but it'd be helpful anyway. Should we build our worship services for believers or non-believers? My answer is easy. Yeah. One word. Go ahead. Say more. I think it's probably the same word. Um, Should we build our services on believers? In in other words, cater them to, build them around? Yeah. The church is the body of Christ. It's, It's the place where it's the people whom Jesus has redeemed for his glory. So the idea of building the gathering of the church around people who don't know Christ seems exactly the opposite of what you should do to me. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't making things intelligible, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. Intelligibility is very important. But this is the time we gather to celebrate the saving works of God in Christ. And so to, to think, well, I, I need to make this accessible or, or cater to the unbeliever. They can't even understand it apart from God doing a work to open their eyes, to, take the, to lift the veil. So, so I'd say the answer is unbelievers. I mean, believers. <laughs> Don't build it. After all that. Yet we, we, the church is for those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So that's, you know, that'd be a beginning of an answer.
Yeah, I, just yes. And to say that we, we structure to preach to believers, sing things that believers ought to sing, pray prayers that believers ought to pray. Uh, when I look, I say we, us, I'm assuming believers. That doesn't rule out the fact that you know unbelievers are there. And you will say things to them periodically. But you don't, you don't do worship for them. They don't know how to worship. They can't worship. They don't have the Holy Spirit. So if you, if you become, I mean, if that's what seeker-oriented means to you, you'll gut the very thing your people are starving for. They have to have. They have to be fed as sheep. They have to go vertical for, for to to know God and love God that way. The very thing that unbelievers can't do because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have spiritual eyes. If you want to please them, you're going to have to do things that are unspiritual. They they don't have spiritual taste buds, which will turn the morning worship service into uh, an evangelistic service and that's not what it was designed that's not what worship is designed to be i mean if you want to make a case you should worship on thursday night and do evangelism on sunday morning you can make that case i i think it won't work long term because traditions people are going to come to your evangelistic service as worship they get thinner and thinner and the thursday thing doesn't feed your people so i think our main gathering should be for the people of god and that the way unbelievers get saved besides those periodic addresses to them is seeing and overhearing the glories of Christ for this people and the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to want it. Although I I really commend the heart behind that question. I mean, I started by smiling because I think the answer is obvious, but the heart behind the question is we, we need to be reaching out to unbelievers. Yes, yes, and amen. Uh, I think it's the, the application has to be what, what God tells us in his word and not what we think works best. So. Given the emphasis on worship as the experience of being satisfied in God, how can someone worship God joyfully in the corporate service if he or she is struggling with depression? I will um, ad- address that issue tomorrow morning, but I'll put it in a nutshell here. Um, it's an absolutely essential question, and, and not just depression, but just ordinary f- flatness of emotion or brokenheartedness for sin or grief at having just lost your wife or any number of heartaches that come into the Christian life. And now here's John Piper saying the essence of worship being satisfied in God. What what about all the brokenness and sadness and loss that's out there? I don't say that oblivious of that. Um, Being satisfied in God is not a description of any particular outward emotional state. You can be satisfied in God and be weeping your eyes out at the death of your mother. You can be satisfied in God while praying and aching for your lost child. And the form that satisfaction in God expresses itself with 
will vary according to all kinds of locations in life, experience in, in life. So I'll try to make that plain, but what, what I would say to, to the depressed person is um, there will be, if they're born again, a seed of contentment in Christ, a seed. And, and the form it might take is, right now, I feel nothing. I am totally numb emotionally. But I have a memory that there was once a sweetness of affection, a sweetness of trust, a sweetness. And I, by faith, believe it's still down there because theologically the Bible says he'll be faithful to me and that I now in this room while everybody's singing and I don't have any feelings to sing at all am saying to him please restore to me the joy of my salvation that sentence coming out of your mouth with the raw faith that is down there is worship it's because it's rooted in a satisfaction in God that temporarily is clouded over. It's blanked over by, by whatever pain has, has brought this depression on. And you go to Psalm 40, and I can't tell you how long it lasts. I, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me and lifted me up out of the desolate pit, out of the miry bog. He put my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. How long were you in the miry bog? Doesn't say. One of the first things I did when I came here in the summer was preach on the Psalms. And I preached that one and I called it In the Pits with the King. This is King David. Out of the pits... You drew me up out of the miry bog. How long were you down there, David? A week? A day? A month? A year? I'm glad it didn't tell us. Because I, I, I pray with depressed people every week, right there. They come up and they feel, I don't know if I'm saved after that sermon. And we, we pray, we wrestle together. So I'll have more to say about that, but don't, don't hear the word satisfaction in God as equating some outward emotional state, kind of a rah-rah moment. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing is our favorite phrase around here. When I say gravity and gladness in worship, it comes from that phrase. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6, 10. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Assuming that everyone on stage during corporate worship is a worship leader, direct this to Bob, uh, what do you think about paying musical and vocal accompanists and hiring non-Christian musicians to play during the service? The question kind of answers the question. Um, I don't think there's any scripture that the first part of the question, second part of the question is kind of similar to what the previous question was asking. It seems that if the church is the gathering of those whom Jesus has redeemed with unbelievers, they're watching. It doesn't seem to make sense to put someone on your 
music leading team who can't worship God because they don't know Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, yeah, that just seem, seems to be obvious to me. I, I realize people say there are evangelistic purposes and, and I just say, well, there are other ways of evangelizing those people that don't, don't involve uh, diminishing the significance of the church of Jesus Christ. Because that's what I think that does. Uh, but the first question about paying, but it was, I, th- I think, I mean, you can't, I couldn't say that's wrong. I think it's a preferable, and I'm trying, I haven't thought this entirely through. Someone asked me that the other day. Uh, I think it's preferable to have people who are there using their gifts to serve the church because they love to do it, because it brings glory to Christ. Um, I think uh, paying musicians does, again, tend to diminish the significance of the local church. Uh, if there are people in your congregation and, and you just want to bless them and say, you know, you're spending a lot of time doing this. We want to bless you. That, that, I think that's fine. I, I don't think that's, uh, you know, if you'd pay a children's ministry worker and say, thank you for the gift, you know, the ways you've used your gifts to serve here. But the idea of bringing people in from outside, it, it tends to emphasize, I think in an unhelpful way, the the skill performance side of, of the music rather than the heart authenticity side of the music. I know there's a healthy tension there, um, but it also ends up uh, encouraging musicians to kind of to go around and play wherever and not necessarily be planted in a church and meaningfully involved in a local church. Um, you know, that happens a lot. It doesn't have to be that way, but I think it, it's fraught with that tendency so it's not something I think uh, I'd be real excited about, but what I think doesn't really matter. Uh, what what God thinks matters. Um, and it seems to me that the uh, emphasis is on the body, people in the body, members of the body, using their gifts to serve the body for the good of the body, for the glory of Jesus, rather than having to hire people in to do that. Yeah, I would just go... Totally there and, and be even stronger to say, don't, don't use unbelievers in worship leadership. It, it can't be done. It cannot be done. It's not worship. And if you want to have participants in worship leadership who aren't worshiping, that's strange. It's, it's not healthy. It's, you won't be able to pray right. You won't be able to talk to your people right about what's going on up here. It'll be a, it'll be a burr uh, in, the, in the saddle. It'll be just a screeching instrument. We're all worshiping up here except her, you know, the violinist. I remember 29 years ago serving communion to the orchestra with person after person turning me down. And I, 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 went, I went to the worship leader. I said, what, what, what's up? What's up? He said, well, we brought them in from outside. They, they're not, probably not believers. I said, don't ever do that again. Okay. <laughs> it's just, I mean, this is just a non-negotiable. Not, God holds his nose at that kind of worship. Just so in the Bible. Let's see if we make out with the handwriting here. If it is true that when the heart affections disengage, worship ceases... What advice would you give to a novice worship leader? Uh, mentions here, you know, the mind goes to a chord progression or, or what it takes to lead worship. 
And at that moment, they're disengaging to a degree to the, the heart part of worship. What, uh, what advice would you have for novice worship leaders? Um, someone asked me this question in the break. Um, two, thing, two things I'd say to them. Uh, one is that we can misunderstand what worship is. We can think it's a certain emotional state. A certain, you know, closing our eyes, you know, that, and I'm finally worshiping. You can offer up your diligent attention to music as an act of worship. Um, you know, if, if, if I have a trumpet player it, it, playing on Sunday morning, I don't want him, you know, raising his hands while he's playing trumpet. I just want him playing the trumpet, um, you know, doing, doing what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, so, so you can use your musical skill and, you know, wherever you are in your skill level um, as an act of worship and say, Father, I want, I want to lead the people well. I need to concentrate on this, but I want to do it in a way that's not distracting. So that's the first thing. Be released. Be, get free from the idea that I have to have a certain um, look or feeling. Uh, the second thing, though, is practice. Practice, practice, practice. Um, the, the more, one, th- we tell him he's instrumental in some other things. Psalm 34, 5 says, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. So if your face isn't radiant when you're up here, you're looking to something other than the Lord. We want you to look to the Lord. That doesn't mean you're beaming. It just means that, that there's a peace, there's a joy, there's a, there's a naturalness in your expression that comes from knowing I'm here to magnify the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's why I'm up here. The more we're able to focus on the truth of what we're singing, the more that will take place. It's not just, we're, we're not just up here to get moved by the music. As Harold Best says, being morally, be, being emotionally moved by music is not the same thing as being morally changed by the spirit. They're two different things. So it's not just about being moved emotionally. It's about seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as we sing. So I want my skill level to be at such a place. And this can take years, but it's worth it. It's worth the investment. I want my skill level to be at a place where as I'm singing and as I'm playing, I can think about what I'm singing and, and I'm filled with the joy of beholding God's glory in Christ or, or, you know, whatever the particular thing we're singing about. And so that happens over time and I'd encourage you to work towards it. John, in the effort of going vertical in corporate worship, in what ways can we make a greeting Go vertical. Um, by giving a lot of thought ahead of time to how you're going to do it. Second, saturate it with the Bible. Third, don't tell any jokes. Fourth, have a demeanor that fits the moment. If if your worship leader just had a gathering song that ends on a soft note, don't say, welcome, everybody. Just totally miss it. Totally misses it. If you, if you end up, don't come in whispering. Be in the spirit. Be in the spirit of what's happening. Um, fourth or fifth or whatever the number is, um, 
capture sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Somebody in the fourth pew just lost their job. Somebody just found out they had cancer. Somebody, kid, just called and said, I don't believe anymore. They're out there. Lots of them. They're out there. Others just got married. They're just thrilled to be in church together for the first time. And others just had a baby and their roses on the piano. And they're just happy as can be. And these people are beaming. They don't want you to tell them it's a sad day. Ask God to show you how to do that. How does that sound? There's a sound that makes the the broken feel he knows I'm here. And a sound that helps the, the thrilled nose. That's good. That's good. There's a season. There's a way to talk. There is. Ask God to, to give it to you. But I, I think it's the, it's the longing for it that, that's the, the key. And I think so many pastors feel like the meaning of that moment is we got to feel friendly. And the only category for friendly they have is kind of y'all come country music friendly feel. And, and, uh, and it isn't. It isn't. If you're standing here, we stand down here for the welcome. When I'm doing, I just, I feel like I can touch you. I'm just right there. I can touch you. And I'm glad you're here. We are here to meet King Jesus. And there's a smile for that. And, and then, and there, there's, some, there's some babies to announce. You thank God for the babies. He made the babies. They're going to grow up and live forever. They didn't exist 10 months ago, and they now exist forever. This is awesome. This is awesome, right? You don't tell a joke about the babies. They're beings that are going to live forever in heaven or in hell. And, And that's true of everything. Everything has a weight to it if you just look at it. So I don't don't think you're going to sound sick if you draw attention to the wonderful, weighty things. And and I'm not ruling out humor. Uh, We were talking in our preaching class the other day about the difference between robust humor and ever-present levity. Levity and humor aren't the same. Levity is when you feel like you got to tell a joke every minute and, and, and you do something funny with your hands and comment about it and just, just constantly deflecting things away from the substance onto some superficial thing, like the way I'm waving my hand right now. You know, just, you just com- you comment on that on the same morning or whatever. Whereas humor is you're preaching seriously about the difference between um, a dolphin and a jellyfish. You want to be a dolphin, go against the tide of the culture. You don't want to be a jellyfish floating along. Nobody wants to be a jellyfish, do you? And a three-year-old girl sitting right there with David, she says, I do. <laughs> and everybody roared in this room. It just totally broke down. And I did too. That is exactly healthy. She said that because God put it in her heart to say that. I want to be a jellyfish. That's, that is God, life is like that. And a person who can't laugh at that in the middle of a serious sermon is a sick preacher. He's sick. And you don't want to be a sick preacher. You want to be a healthy preacher. So you laugh and you say, no, you don't. You don't want to be a jellyfish. <laughs> oh, I understand. It's, they're cute. <laughs> a final Can qu- be done. 
a, a vertical, God-centered, happy, serious welcome that makes people know your Bible-saturated and God-centered can be done. So one last question, and perhaps a chance for you to clarify something. Uh, this person writes, Pastor John, were you serious about preferring basketball hoops in the sanctuary? I was. I was. Um, um, it, it wouldn't look like this. It, it would be a, a box uh, that would cost half of what we paid probably. Um, and it would have multi-purpose. The reason I wanted a flat floor is because you could do a, a banquet in room. This, this room with a, with a floor like that is useful for only one thing, namely sitting in pews and, and attending to what's going on at the front. So um, I suggested the other day that the South Campus might want to start by building a gym and worship there until they can afford to do something else. And by that time, I'm going to be gone probably. <laughs> I won't have to make that decision. Um, um, no, I'm, I'm not into, uh, R.C. Sproul would be the other, other side of the coin. He, he's built a, a magnificent cathedral-like structure there in Orlando. And, and for him, he's got the last chapter of his book on holiness is all about holy and sacred space. And I was moved when I read it. I totally respect that approach. I really do. I preached in that that building with no qualms of conscience whatsoever. I worship here with no qualms of conscience. But I'm I'm a, I'm a pilgrim on this planet, and uh, I'm into reaching uh, the nations with our money. And uh, to me, simplicity is pretty high rank and multiple use. That's what I call it. I call a multiple use room. And uh, I think you could probably turn a, a big square box into a pretty uh, worshipful space on Sunday morning. If you had really creative artists who could, you know, develop the kind of hangings and whatnot, that would cost a few thousand dollars, but not, you know, three million dollars. So, yeah, I was serious. But, I, you know, I don't fight these battles anymore. They're, they're over. I, I, I just let people. I did not go to a single building committee meeting for the North Campus. Not one. Just, Dan, do your thing. David, South Campus, do your thing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to intrude anymore. I said more than I should have said already. Thank you. Bob, would you close us in prayer? Mm. Father, what a privilege and a joy. It is to to speak of these things knowing that we're not simply talking about methods and practices and ideas and tips. We are seeking to learn more about how to serve our churches, serve people in those churches with helping them to see the glory, your glory, in the face of Jesus Christ. And do it in such a way that it is not distracting, to do it in a way that is filled with faith, to do it in a way that accomplishes your purposes and your plans. So thank you. Thank you for allowing us to be here. We thank you for the fact that you are the one who is supremely valuable. 
you are the one who is supremely glorious and that you have called us to yourself through our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And your spirit indwells us, so you are with us. And we have great faith and confidence because of that, that you will be glorified in us and through us. We thank you for the ways that tonight has contributed to that, and we pray for good night's sleep and that we will wake up tomorrow eager to see your glory again in the face of our great Savior. So we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.